Into the Moth Light. Into the Moth Light podcast. Hello and welcome to Into the Mothlight, a podcast dedicated to artists moving image, experimental film and festivals and installation art. Transit Arts have been organising the exhibition of artists moving image since 2015 through public screening programmes and experimental publishing. It's run by the Glasgow-based curator and writer Marcus Jack who is also currently researching histories of artists' moving image in Scotland. His first exhibition of artists' moving image came from the back of a transit van and a series of pop-up screenings across Glasgow. He's curated numerous screenings since then in Scotland and the north of England. He's also on the submission panel of the Glasgow Short Film Festival. His written work includes an essay entitled Seizing the Means of Projection, where Marcus considers 30 years of artists' moving image exhibition in Glasgow. More on this later. The latest project from Transit Arts is Dowser, which Marcus describes as a series of newly commissioned essays, interview transcripts and archival materials which makes available, for the first time, a collated set of resources from which we might begin to plot a history of artists' moving image in Scotland. So, a lot to talk about, but my first question, as usual, was about his journey into artists' moving image. Into the moth light. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I guess I would say that I come from a kind of fine art background. So enter it not through film or through film studies, but through kind of fine art practice. Um, So I did history of art as my undergrad uh, a while ago. And then after that, did a master's in curatorial practice, um, which with the intention of kind of going into the art world and and doing that sort of thing. Um, I guess I found quite quickly after that, that space isn't so easily available to uh, to young curators who want to put on projects, especially in Glasgow. Um, space is kind of more and more a premium. So I was trying to think about things I could do um, which would not have to rely on that or not be contingent on space. Um, so kind of the project I came up with was called Transit Arts, and essentially it was a nomadic series of film screenings. Uh, which took place out the back of a transit van, uh, lending it its name. So, yeah, I guess the, I was first attracted to Moving Image because it was um, really light of foot. It was mobile. It didn't require the infrastructure of a kind of indoor gallery space. Um, yeah, so so for very technical reasons, but I guess um, that sparked an interest which became much greater and much more kind of, uh, concerted and research focused. In terms of artists moving image, what can you remember your first experiences of, of of that? So, can you remember any of the particular artists or any of the particular settings that you were able to see that kind of work for the first time? And what what was your kind of reaction to it? Yeah, similarly, I guess coming from this contemporary art position. There are two works that really stick out for me or that were kind of an entry point. 
Um, and they're not historic, they're, they're kind of contemporary works. And the first was Elizabeth Price's user group Disco, um, which I saw at GOMA as part of the British Art Show. Yeah, that really stuck out for me. It, um, it uses music from the Human League. Uh, it's quite aggressive. Uh, it was just really flashy, and I hadn't really been captured by film in a gallery space like that before. Um, and I think maybe within that same show, even, or, or not too far related, the timeline's a bit iffy, but I saw the Autolith Group's film Hydra Decapita, um, which is about the kind of fable of Drexia. I don't know if you know them, but Drexia is a techno um, duo based or from Detroit, uh, and they've created this whole kind of mythology around their music that's based on uh, they being the ancestors of of slaves lost to the the Atlantic. So the kind of Black Atlantic and that that whole uh, Afro-futurist kind of research core has become really popular now, but I saw this film quite a long time ago. And yeah, it really punctured me. Again, it was sort of music-driven. It was electronic. It was quite punchy. And I think at that time, I was very much kind of interested in electronic music. And so maybe I, I kind of got segued in that way slightly like a magpie just attracted to loud noises but those are two kind of seminal works yeah unlike us into the Mothlight, who are based in rural scotland i I imagine it must have been quite easy for you to um see that kind of work being being someone based in, in glasgow yeah it has been i mean i don't think we by any means sit on a kind of embarrassment of riches here. There are still kind of no concerted spaces or regular programmes where this stuff is disseminated. It's still very much through festivals. Uh, Festivalisation is kind of the way it works, which is not too dissimilar to Hoik, I guess. Um, So this stuff really comes around through AMIF, but also through strands and things like the Glasgow Short Film Festival and then more specialist kind of festivals like Document or Africa in Motion. But in terms of like a cine club for this sort of thing, that doesn't exist, I don't think. Um, I guess part of what I felt my role was to do with transit at, at the beginning was to be this sort of importer. Let's talk about the formation of Transit Arts. The first programme is in 2015, uh, August of that year. So almost five years to the day, um, pop-up screenings yeah. from the, the back of a van. So what was the catalyst for forming Transit Arts and what was the original vision behind your thinking? I mean, it was very much imagined at the start as a bit of a one-off. I talked about the van earlier and, and I guess there was a thematic in there and that's why the name became Transit. I was I was interested in the van itself. Um, I was interested in the van as a carrier or something. So Contextually, we cited it in the Barras, which is Glasgow's kind of historic marketplace where people sell things out the back of a van. And it was very much like conceived to blend in with that or to sit in with that. Um, So the works that were then showing out the back of a van were talking to kind of themes of commerce, of trading. Uh, It was a sort of exaltation of the street trader as this sort of symbol. I thought that was that was a kind of interesting proposition but it, the format grew legs and it became its own thing after that and people of the, the know glasgow mm. will know the barras um fairly well for anyone else it's a it's a kind of 
flea market of, of sorts that is populated by what we would describe as characters, perhaps. So what, what was the reaction from the people that came specifically to see the work and also the kind of people that would be just on a normal visit to the market? I mean, I guess that the context was chosen very deliberately and the work was presented without any allusion to it being art or to it being this kind of niche, elevated subject matter. It was kind of meant to be at street level and viewed as such. The reception was really interesting. It was uh, it was definitely mixed. It attracted some interesting kind of uh, discussions. But I think there was one work in particular in that programme and it was by Common Culture. It was called Book Sale, I think. Uh, and essentially it was a pastiche of like a QVC shopping channel type kind of program um, in which an actress is trying to sell the artist's publication. And they're sort of in that way ad-libbing to try and get through through this segment that they have to talk about. The book can try and sell it. So she starts describing like the uh, the waterproof cover and how you could spill your coffee on it and it'll still maintain its kind of value as a commodity. So it was kind of... It was funny. Um, Humour is definitely a way in when you're kind of working in that community environment, I think. And people really got it and they saw it as this kind of um, satire or a joke. And there were, yeah, there were interesting conversations that I think I've definitely not had since in a slightly more um, institutional art environment. But people just talking about the way that advertising has affected them. Um, yeah, I thought it was it was interesting. And I, I, I did the Van Outdoor project another three times there were four iterations with different programs with varying degrees of kind of success sometimes hostility but it was it was nice I think in general and what what was the appetite for artists moving image in Glasgow in 2015 um was there a lot going on uh, or was there any particular reason why you decided to kind of um you know find this van and start to take work to people there's been a sense in Glasgow of our slightly longer history than 2015, but of um, access to places to show art has been shrinking. We spoke a while ago, this also relates to kind of the discussion of Glasgow International, the, the, the biennial uh, festival that happens here, um, but of a closure of these kind of spaces. Uh, it used to be quite easy to to lease a shop unit at very short term. But those shop units often were owned by the council, which were then sold to Ryden, a, a massive developer. And that really cut cut things off at the knees for a lot of artists who were working in these quite kind of liminal, um, temporary spaces, producing a sort of lack or a dearth of, of work being shown quite quickly and off the cuff. Glasgow has this rich history of artist-led spaces, but even those are kind of... Um, underfunded and, and and few and far between now. I guess there was a there was a, a definite gap for trying to show work quickly, trying to show work without the institution, without the kind of slow timeline that it, it necessitates, um, and that's kind of where it started. I guess it wasn't alone. Um, I should should definitely pay homage to kind of people who've done this before me. Um, there was a great project when I was starting out called Picture Window, um, which used to run by projecting work on, on shop front windows. Uh, they'd, they'd cover the window in pancake batter and project out onto the street. Um, that ran for a few years. That was really nice. Uh, sort of at the same time of me as well, there was a, a, a project called Mount Florida Screenings, 
which originally had its home at Mount Florida Studios, giving it its name, but then it kind of moved outwards. Um, and they had a really interesting format of showing uh, a set of works, but each work was recommended by an artist from the previous edition. Uh, so it was this sort of daisy chain of recommendations um, that would sort of spider out and, and create this kind of lovely network of, of interest and of, of new work. So it's definitely, it's not alone, but these things are terminally kind of precarious and they come and go. Um, So I think it's always about, or it has always been about being quite open to change and to fluidity and to opportunity as well. Mm -hmm. At what point did you know that transit arts was going to be more than, um, you know, a short term project and, and using the van? When did you decide that this was something that you felt the, the, the arts to continue to to develop these opportunities and, and to curate different artists into these the spaces that you use? I guess it was a string of happenstance, of luck, uh, before I'd even run the first kind of version of Transit at the Barras. I was approached by someone from Southside Film Festival who had heard about the idea. I'd started kind of promoting it, but it hadn't happened yet. The Southside Film Festival their whole ethos is, is bringing cinema back to the south side of Glasgow, which has no cinemas. So it's very much about kind of appropriating spaces, outdoor screenings, things like that. And it fitted very much within that kind of method. I guess upon that, I had a bit more confidence. I started approaching people, uh, approached the short film festival who were really into the idea. So I did a kind of three night screening series for them and off the back of that quite soon after that uh, I was approached by Atlas Arts who are based in Portree and the Isle of Skye to sort of bring the project up to them in a a quite literal kind of road trip fashion Um, so I went up to there this was the kind of final van screening so the 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 last in the kind of quattro and that was looking it was called suher which is gallic um the name of which translates it's got a kind of double translation uh, the first being sort of labor toil hard work but the second also being uh like a natural tidal causeway so like a like a beach that only exists at some point but maybe provides a bridge to another to another place uh so using those two kind of meetings we developed this program around migration and labor particular to the kind of Western Isles and island context. That was interesting in that it was quite a different audience in context to Glasgow. Um, We were sighted outside a music festival called Sky Live. Uh, So had this huge kind of ingress and egress of people, like a a huge footfall, and trying to capture these people to to get them interested in the project was a, a little bit different. It was more like lobbying. Because some people really fascinated or they'd like seen themselves in films even, and it was a bit more festive and there was a festive atmosphere there. But I remember one person in particular asking, "Is was this like a like a weird Christian indoctrination thing? Were we like out campaigning for some sort of religious cause? And I guess, I mean, to their credit, it was a screen with a gazebo and people with flyers. So it maybe looked slightly like that. But I think after that, I kind of went about retiring the van. Uh, I think to my mind, the, the kind of economics of it weren't making sense. Um, it was quite costly to operate and the fees that I was then able to give to artists were not kind of as maximised as possible. And so that kind of marked marked a closure and a sort of new chapter for for my organising. 
What's your approach mm-hmm. to curation? Because I know going, going back to your, your, your time studying, that's something that's always been important to you. So mm-hmm. it, do you tend to work by theme or do you bring together you know, particular artists that there's work that you're drawn to or excited by at the moment? What, what's your process there? It's maybe a sort of definition in the negative. So it's more what I'm not interested in doing that, that helps define what I see as my practice. I guess I'm not interested in premier status. I'm not interested in the newest work or, or being the, the first person to show something, um, which drives a lot of kind of festival culture. Uh, and to that end, I am interested in old work, in kind of exhuming archival work that's maybe been lost or, or not had the proper recognition. In that way, I guess I'm interested about building up different textures in a programme, almost like a composition where you're, you're taking all these different positions, textures, tones on, on a subject um, to give a kind of polyvocal voice to it. There's there's a selfishness in curation too that's, that's really important and I think it drives a lot of people, but they don't maybe want to talk about it too much. And it's about kind of um, hunger and, and ego as well. And what I mean by that is that I take great pride in being able to like talk to artists who I think are completely amazing, who I'm, who I'm like dumbstruck by, um, who I, I find incredible. And and having a platform like Transit gives you the leverage to to reach out and make those connections and, and kind of meet your heroes. And there are definitely a few artists who uh, I've built up a bit of an enduring relationship with and I've maybe shown a couple of times, but who fit that category. Um, people like Deborah Stratman, uh, who's based in Chicago, and Amy Siegel, um, who I think is also based in Chicago, maybe New York. They're both, I'm completely uh, starstruck by both of them and think they're amazing. Uh, and to have the ability to kind of even reach out to them is amazing. Uh, so, yeah, I think after the kind of van stage, if that was like a chapter, I felt maybe confident enough to start trying to pursue the stuff that I really loved uh, and take that love and be able to show it to other people. Yeah, so I guess that developed a process of maybe pursuing these works that you have a bit of an obsession with uh, and then building programmes around that based around the the thematics of those works, trying to hang different things on that will kind of amplify the arguments or uh, offer a contrary perspective or a different kind of geographic context, a different kind of context of time, of place. Um, But also it's important to me to kind of have a multiplicity of of voices uh, and that that means identities as well. So having having a programme that's rich and varied and diverse uh, in terms of its makers as well as its content. Mm -hmm. At the moment, I'm uh, looking at films for the Ann Arbor Film Festival um, over in, in, in Detroit. There's so many works where I would love to see them shared, perhaps not necessarily at that festival, but but somewhere because it, it's work that mm-hmm. deserves an audience. And I, I expect you'd satisfy some of that hunger by your work at the Glasgow Short Film Festival. So there must be work that you see submitted that you're really keen to perhaps reach out to the you know, artists that might not make the grade for that particular festival, but you'd like to share the work at some point. Oh, completely. Yeah, I've worked for the Glasgow Short Film Festival in a kind of submissions panel capacity since 2016. Um, And what that involves on the ground is watching like between four and 600 films every year. 
um, which is a kind of extraordinary amount of footage. And without a doubt, every year there are a couple of things I see that I have to pinch or I have to poach. Um, regardless of whether they make the actual programme, I can think of some really key works or they've introduced me to kind of filmmakers anyway. One of those is, in particular, was called Flores. It's a beautiful film by a Portuguese filmmaker called uh, Jorge Iachom. I think it came out maybe... 2017, 2018, but it's this beautiful, dreamy, kind of 16 mil short set on the Portuguese archipelago of Azores. Uh, stunning. And I saw it and I was kind of gobsmacked. Um, and it was included in the festival. But for me, I felt I had to pull it along with me and, and take it somewhere else. Uh, and I included that in a screening that I did at Tyneside Cinema um, about a year later. So, yeah, totally. It's uh, There's no kind of sense of competition there or, or, or ownership it's like if you see something good you should show it to as many people as you can um, and, and not be guarded about that I think Into the Moth Light Into the Moth Light Podcast one of your essays that I read, you, you took a look at 30 years of artists moving image exhibition in Glasgow, and you, you looked at some of the key groups, key events, key artists. How easy has it been to, to research this, given a lot of the time, the DIY nature of, of, of these kind of um, groups that pop up, and the fact that um, collectives, groups, organisations, artists and spaces all come and go. How has it been um, to kind of start to gather that information? Mm-hmm. Extremely difficult. Um, I, have a, I have a folder on my computer in my PhD drive uh, for archival material. And when I started this process, I thought, oh, there's maybe three or four key archives that I need to look at without thinking that um, the vast majority of these archives are informal. They belong to a person who's got a file in their attic or something like that. Um, and now that three or four has has grown to maybe like 40, 50 different sources, which has been quite a multifaceted effort. So a lot of that's happened by word of mouth. Um, uh, I've, I've been developing a kind of series of oral histories that go along with this archival work. Um, and so a lot of my kind of leads come, come through that. Uh, often you, you'll find things in an archive that will trigger you to go and look somewhere else. And then it becomes a case of kind of joining up the dots um, and sometimes you find things that should be in one, one archive but are in another. So it's interesting. I've now, I've now kind of reconciled this, this amazing, amazing kind of resource that's private and just exists for me um, as this kind of digital accumulation of the archives. But I would love to be able to, to kind of present that in a cohesive way for other people at some point. Talking about the informality of much of this history, it is extremely difficult. Um, sometimes you have to kind of... Uh, stop pursuing roots because it's just not possible. I know I think about my own trail and my own work and what have I left behind that another person in the future could could find or see. And it's really, it's just a website. Um, it's interesting, I think, to think about these things in relationship to technological history as well. Um, I've noticed 
for instance, that uh, when, when I'm looking at a, a kind of older period, say the, the 70s, the late 60s, 70s, 80s, pre-digital, it actually can be easier. There, there can be, it can be better looked after. It exists in a cardboard box somewhere. Someone's catalogued it. Um, the correspondence, letters are all there. You have a, a back and forth. Um, but kind of post-89, post the adoption of email, digital technologies, early web, which is now totally useless. Um, there's a huge data loss, uh, which has made actually the more recent kind of era sometimes more difficult. Um, and you can look into kind of DIY projects from like the early mid 2000s uh, and they might have not left a trace anywhere because because they existed on a website which no longer exists. So I think that's made me think a bit more carefully about how I look after my own information or or how how people should be trying to create footprints or leads for kind of future research. Um, but because of all of this, I could I don't think I could ever say what I, what I'm doing is comprehensive because there might be things I've missed, things that I might never know about, things that no one could ever know about. Was there a period in Scotland in the history of artists moving image that was maybe um especially active or or, or any particular venues or collectives that, that seem to have a really big impact at just a moment in time? Yeah, and I think these things come down to to groups of people. There are a few kind of key networks, groups, times, which form, in my head anyway. I guess the first sort of boom or the first sort of unification of some of these ideas. I guess prior to the 60s, the way I see it is there were a lot of kind of free radicals, people who were quite out on their own, connecting into other international networks, but not so organised as to be called a movement um, or or any sort of organised avant-garde. And the first time that maybe comes into fruition is is in the early 70s, um, immediately following the founding of the Scottish Arts Council in 1967. Um, and whilst that sounds kind of boring and bureaucratic, actually, what I would argue is the Scottish Arts Council at that time was one of the most interesting, radical and innovative bodies. Um, it was really a quite small core of people but not only were they funders, which is, is how we would know them now, they were also curators. So they, they had two Scottish Arts Council galleries, one in Edinburgh, one in Glasgow. Um, and there were individuals there who were supporting really interesting video art right at the start of that history. I guess perhaps best known would be David Hall's TV Interruptions, um, which were a suite of works commissioned for the 1971 Edinburgh Festival by a curator for the Scottish Arts Council called Alistair Mackintosh. It was a kind of multi-pronged exhibition, but its essential premise was to not exist in the gallery, to sprawl out, to, to move into the streets and to use uh, channels of communication to happen. And one of these projects of the of the seven or eight that I think existed was David Hall's TV Interruptions, which was made in collaboration with STV, Scottish Television, and essentially they were just um, short pieces of video broadcast on TV daily uh, during the run of the festival, but they were unannounced, uncontextualised, uh, and we just interrupt the, the TV viewing. So the most kind of famous one of one of those is, is called Tap Piece, in which a tap is turned on and it fills up the screen. Um, but this is in 1971, so this is the very kind of genesis of video art. This is the first 
work of video to be broadcast on TV in the UK. And I think with that as a start point, the next few years for the Scottish Arts Council were really interesting. Uh, they, they ran a sort of pair of sister exhibitions called Open Cinema and Open Circuit in um, 1973 and six, respectively, although flipped around, Circuit was first. And they looked at quite radical forms of exhibition making, um, exhibitions that, that become made as they're happening using video technologies. Uh, and the kind of group of individuals are in that sphere who were really doing this work were people like Tamara Krikorian, um, who was a video artist herself. Uh, she, she was really interesting kind of character in this whole history. Uh, and I guess the, the, the cherry on top of this five, six years of, of activity is an exhibition that happened in 1976 called Video Towards Defining an Aesthetic. And that was at the Third Eye Centre, which is now the CCA in Glasgow. And that was really bringing together for the first time a kind of conversation around the potential video in Scotland. Uh, there was a, a related symposium. And this only happened a few months after what we've sort of called, in inverted quotation marks, um, the first exhibition of video art, which which happened at the Serpentine in uh, in London. But I would argue that this was happening in Scotland long before in a much more interesting way. Um, and some people would argue that was a beneficiary of this privileged position that the Scottish Arts Council had of being at double arm's distance away. They weren't deferent immediately to the government. They had this sort of two-part funding tier where they were funded by the Arts Council of, of Great Britain and then to themselves. And that, that created this sort of level of freedom where nobody was watching what they were doing uh, or not watching quite as closely and they were able to do quite radical stuff. So for me, that's, that's a really interesting kind of networking community and time. Richard DeMarco, the kind of Edinburgh-based impresario of contemporary art life in, in, in Scotland is also key to that story. Um, yeah, so I would identify that as a first kind of cluster. I could go on and on and on, but maybe a second would be uh, like a whole 10 years later um, with the emergence of Transmission Gallery um, and some of the individuals involved in that who were also working on Variant Magazine, which was a kind of radical arts publication with quite a kind of Marxist feel um, coming out of Glasgow at that time. Uh, and they set up this exhibition called Event Space, which was kind of the next big moment, I think. Um, that was combining radical performance with video art, with film. And that happened a few times. It started to evolve this sort of community around it at the same time as this Glasgow miracle narrative was building up. There was more and more attention being shown on Glasgow as this kind of post-industrial, miraculous place where artists can work, bringing it right into the kind of early 90s. And, and some of those people, including Malcolm Dixon, who's now the director of Street Level, Anne Vance and Paula Larkin, they, they went on to start this festival called New Visions. And that continued to 96 as this amazing uh, bringing together of kind of international voices on film and video art, just as kind of new media was starting, that sort of cluster would represent like the second boom, um, if we want to talk in such crude terms. And then I think what we've evolved into, or kind of has been ongoing since the mid noughties is is a much more DIY kind of way of organising, uh, much more splintered. I think this all comes post digital, post. Uh, 
accessibility of all these technologies. Anyone can get a projector now. It doesn't cost you an arm and a leg. Um, and I think that's created all these quite short-term, more DIY, perhaps more invisible, but equally affecting kind of bursts of activity. Things like Flourish Nights, uh, the Open Eye Club, uh, Mount Florida Screenings, myself, uh, things like Cabbage, which is a new kind of initiative in Glasgow, small bursts. I don't, I don't even know if that does justice to what is such an amazing history, but that's definitely kind of a three-part structure to it anyway. Mm. And we will um, add some, some names and links uh, to our website uh, and, and in particular to that essay of yours that did look at 30 years of, of, of work in, in, in Glasgow. And I'm interested in what you might have found um, in terms of the history beyond Glasgow and Edinburgh in terms of artists moving image um i i think you know visual arts um there's, there's always been um parts of scotland that have been attractive to painters because of the light um but in terms of you know our interest in, in, in the moving image have you discovered anything it's probably not the answer you're looking for but Dundee um, was super influential. Uh, I, I don't know if Dundee qualifies as outside of that kind of metropolitan um, central belt kind of area, but Dundee housed the video workshop, which was was run by Stephen Partridge uh, and an associated master's in electronic imaging. And that's where a lot of people got training uh, in, in quite experimental um, film and video based work. Uh, beyond that, looking at kind of uh, rural or non-metropolitan areas, the stories can be disparate, but that doesn't make them any less interesting. There are people like Enrico Cacosa, um, who is from Wishaw, uh, known as sort of Jean Cocteau's Wishaw-based cousin. Uh, he ran an amazing film club. This is going back to the 50s, uh, so it's a while ago, but he was... Uh, a really interesting filmmaker um, and also speaks to, I think, part of the problem with uncovering a, an earlier Scottish history, which is that it's often recaptured within the idea of amateurism and, and, and that as a whole separate infrastructure to avant-gardism. Um, so because Scotland didn't necessarily have an organised avant-garde doesn't mean that people were not practicing in that way. It was just that they were maybe exhibiting in in, in different spheres. Um, and Kikosa is a really interesting example of that. Um, of course, there's Margaret Tate and her whole, whole lore around her in, in Orkney. Um, but yeah, I think it is it is a sense of slightly more disparate activity. And a lot of that is, is really rooted in a technological basis. Um, Film and video, we have to remember, was a really expensive medium. The kit was not easy to come by. Um, the video certainly wasn't accessible for, for the first decade of its life, at least. Even filming, not in a studio context, might have been something that was difficult. Um, which I think, yeah, that has created a difference towards the central belt and towards Glasgow and Edinburgh. I think my research is very aware of that. I'm not sure what I can do to challenge that, um, whether that's the facts or whether I, I've been naive to, to other things that are happening. But definitely, I think the shift towards a sort of po positive discrimination away from cities um, has been a feature more of kind of arts infrastructure in the past 10, 15 years. Uh, and we see that, of course, in kind of the emergence of all these really interesting organisations, Alchemy included, um, that are all over Scotland. 
So you mentioned Margaret Tay, and that I guess that that links us to Dowser and, and your new projects, and and kind of ties up what we've discussed about your research into their history as well. So a series of newly commissioned essays, interview transcripts, and archive material, which makes available for the first time a collated set of resources from which we might begin to plot a history of artists' moving image in Scotland. And and you've said somewhere else that the, the 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 our story in Scotland has been critically unreported. So what what was the kind of idea for for Dowser and what led to you asking Helen Nisbet to to write the first piece for the the publication that you've just brought out? Opportunism is again part of that story, as I feel like it is for for most of my career. About this time last year, uh, I joined this kind of professional development scheme, um, which is run by the Paul Mellon Centre in Tate, uh, called the Early Career Curators Group. Um, And that's been a kind of series of workshops and things over the past year. But more importantly, it came with a a research budget, um, which is not something I often have access to. Um, So I had this, this small pot of money um, a situation where I was doing all this research but wasn't able to communicate it. And so the two married together really interestingly or really easily. And I was thinking about I was thinking about trying to complicate the discussion a little bit, feeling quite uh, on my own in terms of my research, uh, in terms of being a bit of a lone wolf or the only person that was maybe looking at this history in the same way. Um, and that maybe comes from a lack of research network as well. So one thing I thought I could do to to enliven that was to introduce new voices and actually take the agency away from me and ask other people what they thought about these things uh, and record that. Um, so I guess for me, the objective there is to to fill the room with different voices, with a kind of cacophony of, of opinions. Uh, and for me, that that means it's important to speak in all these different registers as well, um, from kind of very personal reflection to academic essay to interview to all these different kind of textures and types of writing. So, so I hope that Dowser in the long term would, would achieve that. It felt right to, to commission Helen, first off, as someone whose writing I'm familiar with, writes in a very beautiful, um, quite poetic way. Uh, and I guess... What was interesting to me there is that Helen's biography um, is one in which she grew up in Shetland, moved to Glasgow for university and has found work in London. So it's been this sort of southward migration following kind of opportunity and necessity. Um, And so I'd asked her to reflect on Scottishness, what that means for her um, as a sort of scene setting exercise to think about what it means to work, live or not be able to live in Scotland. So I thought that was a kind of nice way to introduce things. Um, I've called it a prologue, or or Helen and myself kind of worked with that idea of like an epigraph or a prologue, or something that happens before the the rest of the thing happens. Um, And in that way, it is very much a kind of scene-setting exercise, uh, reflecting on Scottishness before... I feel like the, the, the next few inquire more deeply into, into the actual history. And naturally, Helen found affinity with Margaret Tate, who, is, who has got the same sort of biographic story of migration, um, following kind of winds of opportunity, but then also having the sense of return or that nobody really quite understands 
that very specific context. Um, and Helen's a beautiful writer, so I'm really happy with with. And what's the response been to it? You've issued this as a, a print version and a PDF version, and I, I, I love the idea of having writing like that in your hands to, to, to read and put on your bookshelf when the time's right. So of, of, of people, you know, been quite warm towards the first publication. Yeah, yeah, there's there's a there's a real ethic embedded in that. Um and I think having kind of dipped my toe in academia now, um, there are certain things I don't like about it. I don't like how fortified it is, how inaccessible it is, how it shuts itself off and speaks in this certain way and uses these certain codes. So responsive to that, I wanted to create something that was as open access as possible. So for me, that meant having it available as a, as a free PDF um, at no charge. In the same kind of breath, there's something about the materiality of a publication that is really beautiful. And I knew I wanted to have something I could hold. I wanted something with a spine that felt really important. There's something about a spine which makes it a book. <laughs> um to have that and to think about something serial in that way as a collection of objects was really important. Um, it also created this really nice opportunity where I had this funding. I didn't have the sense that I had to pay myself for this because it, was, it, it came naturally. It's part of my research and it's part of what I wanted to do. So I was able to create this commission um, and then also use these physical copies to raise money for charity. So I've, I've actually just totted it all up and um, the first one is now sold out entirely in physical copy though available forever as a pdf um and it's raised 306 pounds for the scottish refugee council which i think is is lovely yeah i'm just really satisfied with with how that's all played together i got the small amount of funding i was able to commission a writer and i've been able to kind of pass the proceeds on to a really good cause so in that in that way i've maybe never felt a project wrapped up so neatly before um yeah quite satisfying we could um we could talk all all day. I think we 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 kind of mentioned Margaret ever so briefly, but I think that's probably a a conversation for another day as mm. well to get into some of that. It's been really nice to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. It's been great. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Jason. It's been great to talk. Into the moth light.